first couple of years when I was teaching here, I tended to have two or three standard Dharma talks that I would give when I left the monastery. And I think it was about the third year I was walking into the hall, and I realized I couldn't remember which of the three talks I'd given the year before. <laughs> and the question was asked, what if I repeat myself? And there's a woman standing next to me, and she'd been recording the talks. And she turned to me just as we went into the room, and she said, there was something you said last year that meant so much to me, and I won't forget it. And then she said it, and I realized it was something I would never say. <laughs> so I realized, you're going to hear what you want to hear. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say tonight. <laughs> Which actually relates to the topic tonight. Um, if you hang around Buddhist centers, there are two of the wisdom teachings that you will probably hear more than any other. On the one hand, there's the Four Noble Truths, the truth of stress or suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. And on the other hand, there are the three characteristics, the characteristics of inconstancy or impermanence, stress, not self. And almost everything else you hear about Buddhist wisdom will tend to fall under one of those two frameworks. Uh, dependent core rising comes under the Four Noble Truths. Emptiness, in its various meanings, can either come under the three characteristics or under the Four Noble Truths. The question is, of those two, t of those two teachings, which one is the context for the other one? And if you ask most people, they will say the three characteristics, because the three characteristics are basically about reality, the way things really are, and Four Noble Truths are about a problem that we have within reality. Um, Several years back, I was listening to a Dharma talk by a scholarly monk in Bangkok, and he was complaining. He was talking about a particular Burmese school that's, that I'd equated right view with the three characteristics. And he said, that's not true. It's the Four Noble Truths. And I th when I was listening to the talk, I think it was, thought the point was very, fairly pedantic, that three characteristics and the Four Noble Truths are so inter interconnected. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it really is an issue. Um, last year I was working on a book on the Eightfold Path, and in preparation for the book I read around other people's books on the Eightfold Path. And almost everyone, as they get to the Four Noble Truths as right view, will very quickly morph into the three characteristics as the reason why the Four Noble Truths are true. It's because they fit in with the three characteristics. So the three characteristics are kind of the basis of things. The thing is that it wasn't always that way um, in the time of the Buddha. Um, the Four Noble Truths seemed to be the basic truth. When the Buddha introduced the three characteristics, it was only after he had talked about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths established the connection. When he was asked, what do you teach? It was, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And the Four Noble Truths are basically uh, an elaboration on that. Um, the topic, the title of tonight's talk, The Elephant's Footprint, comes from a comment made by Venerable Sariputta, which was that, all skillful teachings can be found in the context of Four Noble Truths in the same way that the footprints of all animals that walk on the earth could fit into the footprint of an elephant. And so it's the Four Noble Truths that form the context in the original teaching. Um, and then the three characteristics play a role within that. Now to understand the role they play, it's important to think about the duties of the, the Four Noble Truths and also the definitions of these truths. The Buddha didn't simply say, there is suffering. He said, suffering is clinging. Now the word he used for clinging is interesting, upadana. It also has the meaning of feeding. Uh, we suffer because we need to feed on things. 
And this is not only physical feeding, but also emotional feeding. We feed off of relationships, we feed off of wealth, we feed off of status. And it's this need to nourish the mind by feeding off of things which puts us in a stressful situation. And, and he actually says that even we feed off the deathless. Um, most of the things that we would tend to feed off of are impermanent, but he talks about people when they reach this, you know, the realization of that there is a deathless dimension, because they're so used to feeding on things, their first reaction is that try to feed on the deathless, and they, so they cling to it, and so they're still suffering there. And when that happens, awakening is, is is incomplete. So even if you try to feed off of things that are permanent, it's still a stressful situation. The cause for the suffering, or the cause for this clinging, is craving and ignorance. Now, craving here and clinging are related because the word for clinging, as I said, relates to feeding. Craving is the same word for thirst. We first thirst for things, and then we go out and we feed on them. Now when you hear this, it's, it's a little shocking, because you think that what well, the Buddha is going to tell me I, don't have to, I can't feed if I don't want to suffer, and that's basically what he is saying. Um, but he, he says that there's a, there's a way to get there without starving yourself. Um, craving, in turn, is based on the ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, that you don't know what really is stressful, what is the cause of stress, etc. And that's why we crave things. Um, the end of craving is dispassion, excuse me, is dispassion for the craving itself. And the path leading there is the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, now each of these truths has a duty. Um, the clinging is to be comprehended. In other words, you understand what is it I'm clinging to, why am I clinging, and you get to understand that to the point where you develop some dispassion for it. Now it may sound strange that we have passion for suffering, but you look at the way people live, and it's pretty obvious then that people keep going back again and again and again to the things that, that are suffering. Um, it's because they don't understand it. Now, if you understand it, you develop some dispassion for it, and then you can let it go. Similarly with um, the cause, the, the duty there is to abandon it, i.e. you see that this is really not worth it and that this craving is, is not your friend. John Sawat, one of my teachers, once said we get it backwards. We think that suffering is our enemy and craving is our friend. And the, in the text they also talk about how we go along with craving as our companion. You're walking down the street, who's there walking with you? It's your craving. Saying, look at the store, look at the people, look at this, look at that. Um, it's a constant conversation. And we tend to want to push the suffering away and to hold on to the craving. Well, it's not going to work, because we're, we're holding on to the cause. It's like we have coyotes out at the monastery, and during the avocado season, the coyotes look really nice and sleek, and they, they're eating the avocados coming off the trees. And you say, that, co that coyote has a really nice looking tail. Let's see if we can take the tail. And so you try to shake the coyote off the tail as you're holding on to the tail. It's, it's not going to shake off. It's going to turn and bite you. And it's the same with other things. We want to get rid of the suffering, but we like to hold on to the craving. It's, it's not going to separate. Another analogy that's sometimes used is that you go into your house and you see that it's full of smoke, and you try to put out the smoke. <laughs> you don't look for the fire. We see the suffering, we try to get rid of the suffering, but you have to find out where is the craving that's causing this clinging. Once you see the craving, then you let that go, then the, then the smoke will go away. The duty with regard to Cessation is to realize this. In other words, to see that when you do let go of the craving, there really is a release from suffering. 
Now this can happen on many levels, sometimes the simple level of letting go of a particular craving and there's a certain release in the mind. But the problem for most of us, we let go of craving. Why? Because we're holding, we're attracted to another one. And so we just keep going from one craving to the next, to the next, to the next. And so we don't really realize when the craving stops that there is a, a decrease in the amount of suffering. The duty with regard to the path is twofold. First you have to develop it. You have to do the work to give rise to concentration, give rise to mindfulness, give rise to your discernment, give rise to right speech, right action, and all the other right factors of the path. Once they've been developed, then you let them go. The image they give in the canon is of taking a raft across the river. You hold on to the raft as long as you're on the river. Then when you get to the other side, you have to let the raft go, otherwise you won't be able to get onto, the, onto high land. So these are the duties with regard to the truths. Now the Four Noble Truths do not just sort of float without some sort of foundation in reality. But the reality they point to is a very interesting one. The Buddha at one point says all, all, all phenomena, which means everything you experience in the six senses, are rooted in desire. It's desire that makes you see things the way you do. Now, you know, suppose the tree out there, you can't say the tree is rooted in your desire, but your experience of the tree is shaped very strongly by your desires as to whether you're interested in the tree or not interested in the tree. Um, your experience of the Dharma talk tonight is going to be rooted in your desires, as I pointed out. You're, you're going to hear what you want to hear. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that will go past you, but there's certain things that, will, that you will grasp onto, that you will hold onto, are, are based on your desires. Now this can be both good and bad. There are good desires and bad desires. It's often thought that the Buddha said that craving is all bad. But when you look in the path, one of the factors is right effort, and one of the and one of the important parts of right effort is generating desire to do, you know, develop skillful qualities and generating desire to abandon unskillful ones. So the desire ha plays two roles in the Four Noble Truths, either a skillful role and an unskillful role. And it's up to us to learn how to be better judges of which kind of desires to follow and which ones not to. And our desire shapes not only just particular data that we pick in from outside, but also our sense of who we are and the sense of the world that we inhabit. Um, this relates to a concept that Buddha calls becoming, in which you take on a particular identity and a particular world of experience based on a desire. For instance, you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, after the talk tonight, I want a pizza. And all of a sudden you become the person who wants the pizza. And you become the person who is able to find the pizza teacher joint that's open at you know, whatever, nine o'clock at night. Which is probably not a problem in Cambridge, right? No, okay. It's a problem where I live. Um, <laughs> and the world out there is the world that is either going to help you find the pizza or the world that's going to get in the way. And things that are irrelevant to pizza do not exist in that particular world of your experience. <laughs> Now you're sitting here and you say, well, no, I don't want a pizza, I want something else. And the world's going to change, and you may change as well. Um, if you've eaten and you've decided, okay, enough about food, now I've got to think about my work. And then, then you take on a new identity in terms of what your work is. Um, all of a sudden, the computer, which was not essential for the, for the pizza, now becomes an essential part of you as you're going to do your work. And that becomes part of your identity and a, and a part of the world out there as well. Um, I have a friend who has a friend who's psychic, um, and she's found that her role over the many years has been people who have newly died appear to her, and she has to give them advice on what to let go of in order to move on. 
and she was saying that in the old days it used to be relationships that they had to let go of, or their house, or their car, or whatever. And she's finding more and more it's your iPad, and it's your iPod, and it's your iPhone, <laughs> that people really, really attach to these things more than anything else, because it does become part of you. It's part of what you can use in order to get your desires. It becomes more and more indispensable. But you'll, you'll notice if you look at these becomings as you go through the day, they change quite a lot. Your identity changes as you go through the day. The world you live in, that you're inhabiting, that will change as you move from one desire to another one. Um, and so the Four Noble Truths deal specifically with this issue. You know, they say that the, it's the craving that leads to becoming that's the cause of suffering. And so he's saying, but at the same time, we have to create a state of becoming in the mind, i.e. right concentration, in order to put the mind in a position where it can understand the processes of becoming. So the desire that leads, say, to right concentration, right mindfulness, those are things you want to encourage, as opposed to the desires that would lead you away. Now you notice that in these duties for the Four Noble Truths, that the, the the cure, in many cases, is dispassion. You have to develop dispassion for suffering, dispassion for its cause. The Third Noble Truth itself is dispassion. With the path, as I said earlier, there's a twofold duty to develop it and then to let go. So eventually you're going to have to develop dispassion for the path. But before you do that, you have to have passion to put in the time, put in the energy, in order to, in order to put an end to, excuse me, an end to suffering. Now the three characteristics play a role in this context. In other words, they're there to help you develop dispassion. Um, but it's important to understand two things. One is that um, the Buddha never called them three characteristics. You can do a, you can do a computer search for three characteristics in, in the Pali Canon, and there's, there's only one passage which talks about three characteristics, but it has nothing to do with these. What the Buddha does call these things of inconstancy, stress, not self, he calls them perceptions, i.e. they're labels that you apply to things. And you're free to apply them or not to apply them as you see is appropriate. Um, to see that something that you're lacking, and they're there to encourage dispassion. So if you find that you're holding on to something that you see as unskillful, then you would say, okay, let's look and see to what extent this really is something I can hold on to long term. Um, and if it's something that's, that's going to leave me, maybe I better learn how to let go before it turns around and bites. And then the next step is, well, if holding on to it is, is difficult, maybe it's stressful, maybe it's not worth it. And then you see it's really not worth being my calling it myself or mine. And that's what the not-self teaching means. It's basically a value judgment. It's not worth it. The Buddha is not saying there is no self. That this, the third perception, the perception of not-self, is not a metaphysical position. It's more value judgment. And again, this is something we do all the time anyhow, switching between perceptions of self and not-self based on a particular becoming. You can think back to when you were a little kid, you had a little sister. Someone down the street is beating up on your little sister. She is your little sister, right? You go down, you defend her. You come home. She takes your toy truck and starts playing with it. She's no longer your sister. <laughs> She's the other. <laughs> and we go through life identifying and disidentifying with different things all the time. And the Buddha is simply saying, try to be more skillful in how you do this as you make your judgment. Think about when you identify with something, why are you identifying, what are the consequences going to be? And then learn how to do it more skillfully based on that. 
one of our problems as human beings is we tend to be pretty bad judges of what's worth holding on to and what's not. Um, there was a positive psychologist one time who was interviewing people about what made them happy. And they would give a list of things, and then he would arrange that he would call them up at various times of the day. And if they were engaging in this one of the, any of these activities that they said made them happy, they'd say, are you happy? They'd say, mm, not particularly. <laughs> and then they, it happened again and again and again. He kept thinking, why is it that people have so, such bad judgment about what makes them happy? And then he stopped to think about himself. He likes to climb mountains. Now, if there's anything stupid, <laughs> it's climbing a mountain to get to the top and the turning around coming back down. <laughs> and, he, and he reflected on himself. While he's climbing the mountain, he really is miserable. <laughs> and then he gets back from climbing the mountain and he can't wait till the next time he goes and climbs the mountain. So we're pretty bad judges. I mean, one main, major proof of this is Las, Las Vegas. Um, I go camping in the north room of the Grand Canyon and I have to go through Las Vegas to get there. And they have these signs on the side of the road, you know, 93% payback rate. And you know what they're telling you, right? You give them a dollar, they'll give you 93 cents back. And yet still people go. <laughs> We're pretty bad judges of what really is making us happy. So the Four Noble Truths are there to give you some guidance. So there are certain desires that will lead to the end of suffering. Other desires will lead to suffering. It's up to you to choose which ones you're going to, which ones you're going to follow. Now in the context of these Four Noble Truths, the three perceptions are not categorical. Now the term categorical means true across the board. The Buddha said there are only two teachings that he, that he taught that were categorical. One is that skillful behavior should be developed, unskillful behavior should be abandoned. One. The second one is the Four Noble Truths and their duties. And the three characteristics, or the three perceptions, are things that he would say apply at the right time. There are a couple of cases in the canon where people misapply them. There was one particular case where a young monk was asked by a member of another religion, uh, what is the result of action? And the young monk said, stress. And the other, the, this person from the other religion said, you know, I've talked to other Buddhist monks and they've never answered that way before. You better go back, back and check with the Buddha. So, <laughs> so the young monk goes back and the Buddha says, you fool. <laughs> and another monk steps in and says, well, maybe he was thinking about the, you know, the teaching that all feelings are stressful. And the Buddha says, another fool. <laughs> When you're asked about karma, asked about action, you talk about the three types of feelings, so the, the pleasant feelings that come from skillful actions, the unpleasant ones that come from unskillful actions. You don't go to the three perceptions. So that, that's a time when you don't apply that teaching. So it's the Four Noble Truths and their, um, and their duties that provide the context for when you apply these three perceptions and when you don't. When you're working on the path, Anything that would pull you away from virtue, anything that would pull you away from concentration or discernment, okay, those are the things that you apply these perceptions to. As for the practice of virtue, concentration, and discernment, as you're developing these things, you don't apply the three perceptions. You don't say, well, gee, concentration comes, concentration goes, okay, I've gained discernment, let's move on. It doesn't work that way. You've got to work on these things. Now, the problem is that over the course of time, as we move from the canon into the commentaries, things change. 
the first thing that changes is the three perceptions become three characteristics, i.e. they become the nature of reality, they become metaphysical teachings. All things are impermanent, all things are stressful, there is no self, that's how the, that particular perception morphed. Um, nothing has any essence. And therefore, these, because this is our description of reality, they become the context for the Four Noble Truths. Clinging now is not clinging in terms of feeding, or, and it doesn't matter what you're feeding on. Clinging causes, causes suffering. It's no longer suffering itself. Clinging causes suffering because you are trying to cling to things that will not last. That's been changed. Um, ignorance is no longer no longer ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, it's ignorance of the three characteristics. If you understand that things are impermanent, stressful, not self, then you will be okay. No suffering. And this become, in fact becomes the purpose of mindfulness practice, to see that things are changing all the time, you can't really cling to them, and so you just kind of let go. The picture of this, the picture of experience now becomes more passive. We're simply on the receiving ends, because, because there is no self, there's really no agent that really does things. So we're simply there receiving things coming in, and then there's a reactivity that's causing suffering. But if we learn to stop the reactivity, that'll be, that's it. The mind is much less active in shaping its experience in this picture. And it's this picture from the commentaries that now gets carried over into modern Buddhism. There are, and some and serious misunderstandings come about as a result. And again, these misunderstandings are both among people who call themselves Buddhist and also among people who simply have heard about Buddhism. Um, the first misunderstanding is that there is no self, therefore there is no agent, and people suffer because they think they can resist change. Change is going to have to happen, and if you think you can resist it or, or move it in a particular direction, you're wrong, therefore you're going to suffer. So you just learn how to learn how to accept. Um, the second misunderstanding is that to cling means to assume that things are permanent. If you hold on briefly realizing impermanence, it doesn't count as clinging. And that you often hear the, the example given of, you know, it's life is a, see life as a dance, and you're picking up one partner, and that partner sort of goes away while you pick up another partner. The music changes, you, you, you're sort of fluid in working with the change. Um, and as long as you realize that this is going, things are going to be impermanent, you're not going to suffer. One of the images that's used for this is you're sitting on a beach watching the waves come in. Now, if you're foolish enough to try to stop the quote-unquote bad waves and to hold on to the quote-unquote good waves, you're going to suffer. But if you just sit there and watch this nature of waves is to come and to go and you'll be okay, then you're not going to suffer. That's the image they give. And then the third misunderstanding that comes in is that because things are ch always changing, there is no permanent, or there's no st st fixed standard of right and wrong. Right and wrong are going to change all the time, and all you have to do is just kind of put up with this. Um, there's no recommendation for what you should do or what your own personal path might be. Everybody will have an their own individual path. There's no judgment of right or wrong, uh, even in right or wrong ways of interpreting the Dharma. All you have to do is accept change in all of its varieties, and you're going to be okay. Um, the image that I think of when I, when I hear this interpretation was a show I was watching a while back. I've been practicing my French, and I've been watching a, a French Buddhist, Buddhist show. They actually have a Buddhist show on French TV, you know. And I was on it a year back. And the interviewer asked me, why don't you have a show like this in America? And I said, it would never get past the TV executives. But there was this one French Buddhologist who was on there one time, 
he was explaining dependent co-arising and the, the woman interviewer asking him, could you give me an example of what dependent co-arising means in daily life? And he looked at her and he said, it, it means that lovers have to accept the fact that their expression of their love is going to change from day to day. And the way, it looked at, the way he looked at her and the way she looked back at him was basically saying, you have to accept the fact that if we're lovers, I may have an affair, you know. Which is a very French way of determining, you know, <laughs> interpreting dependent co-arising. <laughs> but, you know, there's no right, there's no wrong, you just got to accept the fact that my behavior is going to change over the time and, and within the context of this relationship. So he asked himself, you know, what kind of views are these? One is they're very defeatist, in the sense that, okay, you just got to accept the fact that things are just going to be the way they are and you can't really change them, so just be okay. Um, and that's very sort of defeatist and passive. Secondly, um, it's pretty irresponsible, basically, not allowing you to play any role to change yourself in a way that would have a good effect either on yourself or on other people. And the third problem is it's not really realistic. You ask yourself, what are the things that we cling to most? I can think of two things right away, food and sex, right? Now, do we think food is permanent? Do we think sex is permanent? No. But we still cling. So to say that, okay, we know that things are impermanent, and if we hold on, it doesn't count as clinging. That's not the case. We're really, really clinging. And those dead people who cling to their iPads and their i, whatever, you know, it's, they know that they're impermanent, but they want to, you know, they're still going to hold on anyhow. And what for me is the most important thing is that if you compare this interpretation with the Buddha's interpretation, the possibility of a true happiness just doesn't exist. You just got to learn how to desensitize yourself to the pain that comes when you, you are basically a serial clinger, moving from one clinging to the next, to the next, to the next. There's a lot of pain in that. And the Buddha's offering, he said, there is, with the Four Noble Truths, so he said, there is an end to suffering. There is a dimension that you can touch that doesn't change, that doesn't depend on conditions, that doesn't involve feeding at all. And that's the kind of happiness he's offering. So his strategy is that you want to see the drawbacks of feeding and at the same time provide you with an alternative source of food. Because you know, if you say, chief, you know, food is impermanent, my stomach is impermanent, I'll just stop eating, it doesn't work. He's basically saying, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you an alternative source of food. You learn how to feed off of virtue. You learn how to feed off of concentration, particularly. When the Buddha is giving an analogies for the path, the concentration usually comes in as the food. Uh, one of his most striking analogies is of a fortress on the border, frontier. And you've got the fortress walls, which stand for discernment. In other words, the discernment that doesn't allow the enemy in, doesn't allow your defilements in. And the interesting feature of these walls is that the plastered, so they have no place where you can grab on to climb over them. Um, the fortress is surrounded by a moat, which is a sense of shame and compunction. It's got a foundation, st foundation post, which is conviction. And it's got a, a gatekeeper at the gate, which is mindfulness. Now, mindful, the duty of mindfulness here is to choose who to let in and who not to let in. Now, there's recognize, okay, some people are enemies, so you've got to keep them out whereas other people are trustworthy, you can let them in. Which I think is, an, is, is a very telling in, image for mindfulness, because for most of us, we've been taught that mindfulness means just accepting what comes and goes and being okay. That mindfulness is like those mannequin cops that they put on the side of the road. 
Do they do that in Massachusetts? No? You know a mannequin cop? <laughs> Out where I live, the tax base is a little bit shakier. Um, and so when they don't have enough money for real cops, they will park a car on the side of the road and they will put a mannequin dressed as a policeman inside the car. <laughs> yeah. hmm? What's the difference? Well, the difference is, is the first time you go past the mannequin cop, you slow down. And then you look in the car and you realize, wait a minute, that's a mannequin. So the next time on, you don't slow down anymore. And so if mindfulness is just going to watch things coming and going in the mind, it's a mannequin cop. The duty of mindfulness is to remember what's skillful and what's not skillful, so you know what to do with what's skillful, arising in the mind and do what's, what's, do what to do with what's unskillful. And then the soldiers in the fortress are your right effort, and then the food for the mindfulness and for the soldiers is your concentration. You learn how to get the mind into a state where it has a sense of pleasure, it has a sense of rapture, and you can feed on that, so that when you're tempted to fall for other pleasures, you say, well, I've got something better here that doesn't have those bad consequences. And you're going to cling to that, you're going to hold on to that, but you're, it's, you know, it's, you're clinging to something good. Remember the Buddha image of the raft going across the river. You've got to hold on to the raft. You can't get up on the raft and say, hey, look at me, I'm not holding on. Um, you fall off. And one of the interesting things about this image of the raft, there are two things, Actually, there's several. One is that it does give a hope that you can get to firm ground based on your own efforts. There are things that you can do to change your situation. And the situation that you go for is something that's not going to change. You get there and you're safe. You think about being back on the, on, the, on the beach with the waves. You know, what if Hurricane Sandy comes in? The waves come up, you get washed out. Not, you know, when we put quotation marks around waves, not all of them are just quotation marks. Some of them really are bad. You've got to get out of the waves. And the Buddha is giving an opportunity that there is a safe place that's beyond the flood. Um, secondly, that you are in control. There are things that you can do to get to safety. Um, and one of the paradoxes of this image, which I've very rarely seen explained, you know, there's this river that you're flowing across, the Buddha says, is a flood. It's a flood of sensuality, which is your fascination with thinking about sensual objects, sensual plans, the flood of becoming, the flood of views, the, all the views that you might hold on to, and then the flood of ignorance. Because so you're trying to get over beyond views that you might hold on to, but part of that path that takes you apart, that raft, stands for the Eightfold Path, which has right view. So the certain views that you hold on to it, to get you across other views, say, views that would actually get in the way of your skillful behavior. Um, one of the most harmful views that you might have is, well, my suffering serves a purpose, so therefore I should put up with it. You know, the idea that the universe has a secret purpose that you're supposed to find out, and then you have to put up with your suffering in order to help that secret purpose. The Buddha doesn't encourage that. The view of the universe that he makes it part of right view is that the universe has no purpose. Which may sound kind of scary, but it's actually liberating. You can choose, I don't have to suffer. And, those, and there's no, nothing out there that says I have to suffer for their purpose. So you hold on to this kind of view so that you can get across other more unskillful views. So the Buddha is offering something that you can do. He's offering a type of view that eventually you will transcend. Because what is about right view that allows you to transcend it is that you, you're looking at all conditioned phenomena 
As que the question is, is this something that should be held on to or should, or should, be not, or should not be held on to? And you're looking more particularly at what am I doing? It's not, the problem is not things out there. The problem is how I relate to things. And so as you deal with unskillful views, then finally what's left is right view that you're holding on to. And you really, wait a minute, you look at the process of my holding on to this right view. And you get to the point where you don't need it anymore. Right view basically teaches you, let go of me. So that's how that, that that's the usefulness of that particular kind of view. Um, the Buddhist teaching here is also responsible. It gives you guidelines for what you should and shouldn't do. There's an interesting passage where the Buddha said, this is the duty of a teacher is to give you a foundation for deciding what should, uh, should be done and what shouldn't be done. If you're told that everything is determined by your past actions, or everything is random, or everything has been determined by Creator God, there's no basis for you to decide, what should I do, what should I not do? Because your actions don't have any consequences. You kind of give up on the idea of trying to judge what's a skillful action and what's not. But if, for the Buddhist point of view, a responsible teaching is one that says, okay, your actions do have consequences. You can learn from your mistakes as to what works and what doesn't work. And this gives you a foundation for deciding in the future, what course of action should I do next? So he's taking seriously the responsibility, your responsibility as an agent. You have this power within you, and he's basically telling you, make good use of it. Take serious the fact that you are shaping your experience with your desires. And you have a choice. There are skillful desires and unskillful desires, and you can learn through your powers of observation which is which. So the Buddha is giving you a lot of power. He's placing some responsibility in him, but he's also giving you the power to use this, this, this power well. Okay. And then you compare the type of happiness that's, that, it's, that the Buddha is teaching. He's not defeatist. In fact, he, he, one of his names for the Eightfold Path is unexcelled victory in battle. Uh, so it's not just sitting there and saying, okay, let, you know, let, you know, let the enemy just kind of ride over me. He said, you can, out there, you can go out there and actually do battle and win with your defilements. So he's, the Buddha is giving you a much broader and more, a deeper and more, I find, more inspiring vision of the happiness as possible to us if we take seriously our power of, of, as agents. And we learn to put the three characteristics or three perceptions inside the context of the Four Noble Truths. Rather than saying, well, everything is impermanent, stressful, not self, so let's just give up. He's saying, no, you've got these four truths, and if you follow the duties with regard to these truths, which he's not imposing on you, but you ask yourself, wouldn't I rather be done with suffering? And if so, this is what I've got to do. And so learn how to look at your desires and figure out which ones are leading you in the right direction and which ones are not. Learn to develop your powers of judgment by being more and more observant. So this seemingly pedantic point is that which is the context, the Four Noble Truths or the Three Characteristics, actually makes a big difference. And the question is, what do you want? The Buddha says that the ultimate happiness is available, and he's been teaching us swimming lessons for 2,600 years and how to get across the river, get to the other side. Um, the Dharma that's based on putting the three characteristics first is actually siding with the advertising industry. It says, total unchanging happiness is impossible, so content yourself with sitting on the shore. We'll bring you drinks, we'll bring you umbrellas, but don't count on us when climate changes <laughs> and the hurricanes hit. So the choice is yours. So, so that's my talk for tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.